All right, let's open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 10, verse 9. I could lie to you and say we're just going to look at that one verse, but we won't. We'll be looking at a bunch of other verses as well. But we'll start with Romans 10, 9. And if you need to camp out somewhere in your Bibles, that's the place to go. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Here Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would truly teach us today. Lord, we don't only need help in understanding your word. Lord, we really need help in receiving your word and believing it. And we're praying, God, that today would be a day of revival and awakening for all Christians and for anyone here, Lord, who has not yet trusted in Jesus, that today would be the day of their salvation, that all of us here today would truly believe that Jesus and Jesus alone is the Savior of sinners. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's Easter Sunday, and most churches are going to talk about the resurrection, and we're going to talk about the resurrection as well. But what I really wanted to do was I wanted to get back to the idea of faith, of belief, and specifically what Christians believe, fundamentally, the beliefs that make us who and what we are. Because when I'm talking to people out there in the world, not people of Redeemer, but when I'm talking to people out there in the world, in the city, about faith, I get two basic responses, right? Some people look at faith and they go, that's a good thing. We respect that. It's, even if they don't have faith, they go, it's a good thing, good for you, happy for you. And maybe they perceive religion as a, as a, as a net positive, right? Because it keeps people on a general moral path or something. So I see some people that are like, even if they don't have faith, they're pro-faith. Good, go, do your thing. But then I run into other people who look at faith and they think it's a negative, they think it's a bad thing. And the reason they don't like it is because they conclude that you are believing in something that is not only unverifiable, but something that is untrue. They view faith as a weakness. Why would you, why would you believe in someone you cannot see or something you cannot measure, something unverifiable? Faith for them is a weakness. Now for us, faith, faith is who we are as Christians. It is such an incredibly important part of who we are and, and what we are, that there is no sense in which we are Christian apart from faith. And this can be hard for some of us because if you're a Christian long enough, you'll recognize that your faith isn't always so strong and that, yeah, we, we, we believe, but we don't believe. There's doubt mixed in. And then what we are supposed to believe can become confusing because while the Bible is very clear in holding out the hope of the gospel, there are many Christians and churches out there that are constantly telling us all of the other things that we're supposed to believe in order to be true Christians. And it doesn't always seem to line up so well with what we see in the Bible. And it can be confusing and overwhelming. And so I want us to come back to the heart of the Christian faith today, 
And I want us all to see that the, the call or the invitation to believe is offered to everyone. Here's the principle. In short, this is what I want us to walk away with today. The resurrection of Jesus, it is the truth that defines and renews those who believe. The resurrection of Jesus is the truth that defines us and it renews us as we believe. So here's where we're going today. Real simple, okay? Uh, I want us to see, as we meditate on Romans chapter 10, verse 9, I want us to see that Christians believe. Belief is an essential part of what it means to be a Christian. Some of you who, if you're not a Christian, you've probably heard a lot of appeals for you to follow Jesus or to repent or to believe. But what is it? What does it mean to believe? And what are we supposed to believe in? So first, I want us to see that Christians do believe. Second, I want us to see that Christians believe in Jesus as Lord. And third, I want us to see that Christians believe that Jesus rose from the dead. We believe more than this, but this is at the heart of who we really are and what we're all about. Number one, Christians believe, right? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So the question here is, what is faith? Clearly, from Genesis all the way through to Revelation, faith is an essential part of what it means to be a child of God. So what is faith? Well, let me tell you what it isn't, because faith gets a lot of bad press, especially from people who don't have it. All right? So faith is not wishing, right? Faith is not just hoping in some worldly sense that things are going to work out our way. Faith isn't wishing. Faith, faith isn't blind. I hear this a lot. Well, you know, faith is blind. It's sort of a leap into the unknown. This is not true. Faith is not blind. Faith is not ignorant either. Faith isn't ignorant and unknowing. And faith isn't gullible. What faith is, well, it's explained well in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. You can just listen. Here's a definition that the scripture actually gives us. Here, the author of Hebrews says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So there's some poetic parallelism happening here, right? It's the assurance of things hoped for. Now, the things hoped for here in the context of Scripture wouldn't just be anything you hope for. It's not just the assurance that that ham is going to be perfectly cooked tonight uh, when I finally get home. Uh, that's, I know it will be because my wife is a baller chef. But it's not just like a hope in anything that you want, right? It's a hope in those things that have been promised to us in Scripture, okay? So it's the assurance of those things that are hoped for, the conviction or the certainty of things not seen, things that you cannot prove. So it is, what is faith? Faith is belief, that what God has promised is going to come to pass. Right? Faith is to believe in something that has been revealed. It's just not provable. So it's, 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 it's not a leap into the unknown. It's a resting upon what has been said. We open up the Bible. We read this scripture. We believe it comes from God. We believe it is true. It's faith in something that has been made known in the light. It is not a leap into the, into the dark. So faith is essentially trusting what God has said. That's what faith is. It's taking God at his word. Right, so we, we, we can see what God has done in creation. If we respond to that 
is saying like the Lord has made it all, that's a kind of faith, right? It's trusting what God has said or done. We fundamentally get this much more clear in scripture. This is the nature of faith, to trust what God has done. Now, what I'd like to do is maybe put a finer point on it just to explain how faith works, what it is and isn't, because you notice what it says in Romans 10, 9? Believe in your heart, right? It's a specific way of putting it. You believe in your heart. Now, there's, a, there's different kinds of belief, right? Some people just kind of believe, and then the Bible talks about a, a kind of faith that doesn't produce any kind of work or effort. That faith is dead. It's not saving. We read about all kinds of faith. So let's talk about saving faith or biblical faith. When the Bible holds out faith as a virtue, as a thing that makes us, what does it mean? In the Reformed tradition, now this is coming from the Protestant tradition, right? Both Presbyterians and Congregationalists as well as Baptists all articulate faith this way. Faith is made up of three things. It's not faith without these three things. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Those are the three ingredients that make up faith. So, First of all, for us to have faith in something, there must be knowledge. Again, it's not a leap into the unknown. It's a resting or a trusting in what has been revealed. So there must be knowledge of it, right? So you can't believe in Jesus unless you have a basic knowledge of who he is and what he has done. Knowledge is a part of it. Think about the chair. Everybody likes to use the chair as the example. You can have knowledge that a chair is a chair by looking at it because we're so smart, right? We got those, we got those high IQs. We can look and go four legs on a back. That's a chair. It's not a stool. It's a chair. Does it have to have arms? Nope. Doesn't have to have arms. Still a chair. That's how educated we are. We can figure things out with our big brains. We look at it. We have knowledge. That is a chair. Knowledge is only a part of it, though. There's also something called assent, because you can have knowledge that something is claiming to be true and then not believe that it is true, right? The demons believe that Jesus, they like know that Jesus is the son of God, but they don't have faith in Jesus, right? And so let's use the chair for example. I know, I look at a chair and I know that it is a chair and that chair is designed to hold my weight, right? Do I have faith that it holds my weight? Well, if I have knowledge that it's supposed to hold my weight, that's only part of it, but it's still not faith. Ascent looks at it and goes, okay, that chair can in fact hold my weight. If I sit in that chair, it will not collapse. It will hold up. Fine, good. That's still not faith, right? Because I remember talking to my mother about these things before she became a Christian. We would talk about Jesus and and then we would cover everything from the Trinity to hell to creation and everything in between. And she would wind up telling me, Joey, I believe that what you're saying is true, but I don't have faith. Even she recognized there was something missing. See, the element that's missing is trust. You have to have knowledge that Jesus is who he says he is, assent that he actually, that it is true, that what he says about himself is true, but then faith actively trusts. Back to the chair. I can look at the chair and say, like, okay, it's four legs, it's got a back, it's got a cushion on it. I know that that's a chair. It's designed to hold my weight. Faith comes into play when I put my butt in the seat and rest upon it. That's faith. That's what faith is. It is trust. It is dependence on what God has said. Now, this kind of faith, right, this faith is linked to something called confession here, right? You see that in Romans 10, 9? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What is confession? A lot of us think about confession and we think like, okay, the cool wooden phone booths in some churches that you go into to confess your sins to the guy on the other side, right? Those are cool. And you think like as a, as a design, right? I like the idea. I mean, I don't want to do it. I just like the idea. And um, 
So we think a confessional, right? Or maybe you think more biblically and holistically. Oh, to confess your sins to God and to one another. Scripture calls us to do that. That's, that's great. We think confession of sins. But to confess something is to simply say it. It's to articulate it, right? And so here, to confess Jesus as Lord, right, is not merely to believe Jesus as Lord. That's a part of it. But it is to articulate it. Confession here is different from faith but they always go together because true faith, lively faith, makes its way from the heart to the lips. We speak what we believe. It comes out. So there is confession and faith. If faith is trust and confession is articulation of that trust, then we understand why Jesus says in in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, he says, everyone who acknowledges me confesses, articulates. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Confession matters because it is the manifestation, the verbalization of faith. We just had uh, two baptisms this morning at first service. It was, uh, it was Luke and Owen Frost, like 12-year-old, 10-year-old little bundles of energy and faith, right? They were, they were nervous, right? Because you have to get up there. Everybody's looking, of course. They had their, but they were just pumped. And we're in the back. And you know, they're like, you know, they're, they're dancing. They're doing their whatever. They're, they're all super excited. And I'm like, are you pumped for this? Like this, you got, because we do the whole interview, right? We got to do the interview, find out, do you, what do you believe? Do you understand why we're getting baptized? We do all of that. And you understand that baptism is a confession. It's a public confession of faith. So this was the, the first formal confession. They've been confessing Jesus for a while now. They've been believers. But now they're going to formally confess Christ in front of everyone. And I'm like, are you back there? You know how, you're back there. I'm like, you know how important this is? This is a big deal, man. This is your baptism. And they're like, that's right. They're like, we're going to confess Jesus in front of everybody. And I'm like, that's exactly right. <laughs> and that's not just youth, man. That's just faith. That's just what faith does. Faith works its way when it's healthy from the heart to the lips. So confession and faith go together. They go together. And just by the way, it's why we have confessions of faith, right? So the, um, the Westminster Confession of Faith, right? That's the, the Presbyterian standard. It's, it's what they believe that the Bible fundamentally teaches. It covers a lot of stuff. The Savoy Declaration, that's their confession of faith. It's what the Congregationalists believe. You know what they did? They copied the Presbyterians because the Presbyterians did a pretty good job. Then we have the Second London Confession, which is the Baptist Confession of Faith, which they stole from the Savoy, which stole from the Presbyterians. Because we could see like, wow, this is so well done. We differ in certain parts and we're gonna talk about it. But fundamentally, we agree on so much. So we have a confession of faith. All this to say, Christians believe. People act as if the fundamental aspect of being a Christian is behavior. It's not. The fundamental aspect, the defining aspect of the Christian life is belief, not behavior. Behavior follows belief. Faith gives life to good works. But faith is fundamental. So Christians believe. But what do we believe? Well, we got two things here in our passage. Christians believe Jesus is Lord. 
right? You see it again. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Christians believe that Jesus is Lord. We believe this objectively and subjectively. To believe that Jesus is Lord objectively means that we recognize Jesus is who he said that he is. It means that we recognize that everything that scripture says about Jesus is true. We receive that. He objectively is the Lord. This means that he is God manifested, God in the flesh. It means that when you see Jesus or hear Jesus, you are seeing God and hearing God. Just listen. I just want to read just two passages. Colossians chapter 1. Starting in verse 15. Here is the depiction that we're supposed to have of Jesus, the, 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 the concept of, of, of Jesus that we should have in our minds and in our hearts. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent for all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is Lord, and Christians believe that. We trust that. We confess that. We articulate it. We believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Or let's back up to verse 11. Just listen. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We believe that Jesus is Lord, objectively. He is God in the flesh. This means that he objectively has all authority in heaven and on earth. During the baptism, we read from, from uh, Matthew 28, 18, right, where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. It has been given to me. Why? Because of who Jesus is and all that he has done. He has all authority. He created the world. He owns the world. He issues laws. To say that Jesus is Lord is to recognize that he has all authority. He can rule. He can command. Even Jesus is the only one who has the authority to forgive sins. Who can forgive sins but God and God alone? Right. And Jesus says, I have the authority to forgive sins. Listen, just again, listen to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. Jesus was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but in the one to come. And God has put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is Lord. Objectively, we believe that. But we also confess and believe Jesus as Lord subjectively. 
It's not just, we're not just saying, oh, Jesus is Lord, because even the demons could articulate that much. We say Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is our Lord. He is my King, my God. And this, well, this is different than just admitting that something is true. It is holding something as true in your own heart. To say that Jesus is our Lord means that when, when he calls, we follow, right? Think of all the times that Jesus says this, right? Come and follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. We follow him because he has all authority. When he speaks, we listen. When he, when he commands, we obey. Why? Because he is our Lord and he has all authority. So let's be really clear here, right? Because when we're talking about what it means to to believe or what it means to follow Christ, everything that Jesus is offering us. Jesus is not offering us advice. There's a ton of advice out there. You want advice? Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, the mall. Call me up. I have tons of advice. Most of it's not very good. (laughs) My best advice is usually advice that simply works for me. It probably won't work for you anyways. Jesus is not doling out advice. He's holding out truth. Jesus is the truth. So he is not, he is not like every other religious figure. He is exalted above all. We believe that Jesus is Lord. And you know what this means for us as Christians? Forget denominations and all the other things for a minute, right? Just hold Back away for a minute. We find our identity in Jesus. You know how people find their identity in stuff? And people talk a lot about that. Some people, you know, they, they find like, they, it's like it def- this is the thing that defines them. This is the thing that makes me who I am. And some people find that in their career, in their vocation. Or maybe it's not even in that as much as it is in their talents and their abilities. Some people find it in their wealth or status. Some people find it in the Pursuit of wealth and status. Some people find it in their kids. Some people find it in their families. Some people find it in their spouse. Some people find their identity in their longing for a spouse. We find our identity in our subculture, our interests. Christians find their true identity, who they really are, is found in Jesus. Yes, every one of us is wonderfully and fearfully made, and everybody's different in their own way. Sure, okay, great. But you, as a believer, find your identity, who you were made to be, in the Savior who died for you and in the Savior who rose for you. You are wrapped up. Your life is hidden in him. That's what it means when we say, Jesus is Lord. He is everything to us. So Christians believe, Christians believe Jesus is Lord, and Christians believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, of course, this assumes that Jesus actually died as well. Jesus died on a cross. Christians believe this. So let's be, let's be clear here. Christians believe more than this. Christians believe a lot of things, right? The Second London Confession of Faith, right, which is the, the greatest Baptist confession of faith, that, that says a lot, over 30 chapters, lots of doctrines, important stuff, great. But it gets confusing for some people, both Christians and non-Christians, because there are so many people speaking so loudly 
about all the things that Christians must believe and do if they're going to be real Christians, that it can get, it can get overwhelming. How are we supposed to know? Because we do believe a lot of things, and there is disagreement among Christians. So what I'd like to do is, is give you a, a picture of how to think about the various truths and doctrines in the scripture that make up our faith, okay? The, the truths, the theology, the doctrine that we hold to that fill our faith, it's like a song, okay? It's like a song. And some doctrines are clearer in scripture than other doctrines. Can we agree on that, right? Some doctrines are like, that's obvious, soup, boom, it's everywhere, we can get it. Other doctrines, like, mm, I don't know. I don't know, it's not as easily understood. And some doctrines are going to be more critical to our faith than other doctrines. All are true, all matter, but there are different degrees of importance. So, think about it like a song, the core doctrines, those, those most important things. What, if you were to leave these truths, these doctrines, you would not be Christian, right? The, 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 whatever that number is, right, and people debate how much it is, those doctrines make up the melody of our song. You lose the melody, you don't have the song anymore, right? But if you have the melody, somebody can hum it, Right? Or they can sing it with the lyrics, and you know what song it is. Those core doctrines make up the melody, and all Christians historically embrace those core doctrines. And among them, I would say at the center of them, is the death and resurrection of Jesus. You get the melody down. You've got the essence of the Christian faith. And we can agree on it and recognize the song as we sing it, even in different churches, but there are secondary doctrines, and secondary doctrines matter. They're important. And, and those secondary doctrines are like harmonies. So the melody is the through line, right? It, it, is, it is what all Christians are going to sing. That's our song. We recognize it when we hear it. But then these secondary doctrines, which are important but not as critical as the core doctrines, they come along like harmonies, and they complement the melody. They support the melody, but it's not the melody. And so these, these, these harmonies now uh, can be held, and some people might have a harmony that's good, and another group might have a harmony that, that, that you don't hold to, and yet we're still believing the same essential doctrine. And then there are third-tier doctrines, right? These are, these are still true, they still matter, but they're still less important than the core doctrines, and you can think of these as the instrumentation, right? The instrumentation that is used, right? Uh, drums or guitars or whatever it is, right? Strings, viola. The song, the melody, is what's recognizable and it's what unites all Christians, those core doctrines. Though we can differ on harmonies and instruments, at the heart of this, right, at the heart of our faith is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this in verse three, I delivered to you as of first importance. So there's the triage in sorts. This is what he's going to say. Some things are more important than others. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is what 
we believe. We believe that Jesus died and rose. When we say we believe that Jesus died, we don't just believe that his heart stopped. We believe that when Christ was murdered on an instrument of torture, that he was an active participant in offering himself up to be a sacrifice that would actually save sinners. So the word that we use for that is atonement. When Jesus died, he was making atonement for our sins. He was the sacrifice that would cleanse the filthy, that would make sinners presentable to God, and his one sacrifice would do it for all time. Jesus made a perfect atonement. He was our substitute in taking our punishment, and by him we have the forgiveness of our sins. The death of Christ gives us the pardon of our sins. But Jesus didn't just die. He rose from the dead, right? We believe in our heart that he was raised from the dead. And you know what the resurrection does? The resurrection of Jesus gives us the assurance of our pardon. Because if Jesus only died and was not raised, There would be no pardon. There would be no forgiveness. We would be the biggest suckers on the planet for preaching a message about forgiveness with no living savior to prove it, to demonstrate true victory. We would be playing the religious game that we really want to avoid. We'd be playing it to the hilt. Paul makes this whole, Paul makes this argument in 1 Corinthians 15 saying, listen, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then we are of all people most to be pitied. We are still in our sins. We've only been playing a game and fooling ourselves. The resurrection of Jesus is the assurance of our pardon because Jesus did not just die. He died, took away sins, and then he took up his life that he freely laid down. And in this resurrection, Jesus conquers death, which is the curse of sin. So that now that that pain, that sting that comes with death no longer destroys us because we know that with his resurrection, we have the promise of a future resurrection and a future life. Jesus' victory over death is our victory. His resurrection life gives life to all who believe. So there's real life, I mean, transformative life. To be a Christian might sound like just another religion among many, but what we're really talking about is receiving life that only God can give a life that we lost, a life that we let slip through our fingers. We allowed sin to take root in our hearts, to bear the fruit of death and separation from God, and instead of leaving us in the state that we created, God pursued us to save us and rescue us. Jesus died for sinners, rose for sinners, that he might offer us renewal, The resurrection of Jesus, it's the truth that defines us and it renews all who believe. So let me just say this, if I can, just as an appeal. (laughs) See, like it's Easter, right? So we're happy that everybody's here. Easter's great. But if we're being honest, Easter's not a big deal to us at Redeemer. Easter's a holiday. I mean, we like Easter. Pastels, hams, deviled eggs, whatever you, bunny, chocolate, whatever you do, cool, man. Easter's a holiday. It's cool. We preach the resurrection of Jesus every day. Every Sunday is Easter for us without the bunny. Every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection of the living God who laid down his life. Think about that. 
the God who created all things, who gives life, life emanates from him. He laid down his life in order to take it up again. He does all of this for sinners like us. So let me just encourage you. Jesus really did die, and he really did die for sinners. This happened. Jesus died for sinners like you. Jesus really did rise from the dead. Not as any person might be resuscitated on, an, on a table. Uh, Jesus rose from the dead three days in the tomb. And he now offers forgiveness and life and renewal to everyone who is willing to believe. Everyone who is coming to him. So Christian who is weary. Christian who is confused. Maybe you're overwhelmed. Maybe you're just sick and tired of people bringing politics and social issues and all these other things into the faith. Telling you if you're going to be a Christian, you have to take all of this extra stuff on. That's all fine to discuss and to debate, but what you need, perhaps what you need to be reminded of is the centrality of Jesus. Jesus is what makes you who you are. Jesus saves. So maybe the time of, of revival begins when many of us begin to look back to Jesus again and have a renewed focus, and we sing that melody. It becomes our song again. And if you're not yet a believer, I pray that you would look to Jesus today. You can't see him with your eyes, right? But you can, you can see him by faith. And that's not just making something up in your, in your mind. That's, that's hearing the very word of God read. It's, it's contemplating the revelation that God has given you, you. He's given you that revelation. If you've heard the revelation of God, that's God giving you the revelation. Now, what will you do with it? You look to Jesus because he's inviting you. He doesn't invite the good people, the smart people, the best-looking people, obviously. Look at Redeemer. <laughs> he invites all sinners. He invites all sinners, and that's us. You're no better than anybody here, and you're no worse than anybody here. Jesus is inviting you to receive life and forgiveness, but you've got to believe. You have the knowledge. You've heard the truth. Maybe you agree. Maybe you're beginning to see, now this is real. And now the question is, is will you trust? Will you cast your soul upon Christ and his mercy and receive eternal life that only he can give? This is what we believe as Christians, that God loves sinners and Jesus saves them truly. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would give us the faith that we lack where we doubt. We know that, that as, the, as, as Paul said, Lord, no one says Jesus is Lord truly apart from your spirit. So we pray that your spirit would be at work reviving every Christian here, all of us who may feel weak or weary or confused. Lord, would you revive us and give us a fresh zeal and passion for, for your glory. May we be a people who sing boldly and loudly the melody of the gospel. And God, we pray for those that do not yet know Jesus, that today would be the day of their salvation, that you would move in them in such a way that they would confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that you raised him from the dead. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.